You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. And boy, we got a pretty good show for you tonight. We are going to start venturing into in a multi-part series looking at the changes to the 2020 edition of the National Electrical Code. Everybody's starting to understand that it's out now, and I think we have Massachusetts who's actually adopted it, and other states will rapidly start putting it in the process to adopt it or have it reviewed for adoption. Um, And so it's about time we, we start really digging deep into it. There's a lot of publications out there on the 2020 changes, and some are better than others. Uh, but again, it's uh, it's all about education, right? It's all about learning something new and and getting involved and, and starting to see what's changing and what's not changing and things like that because, you know, you're going to be running into it. You're going to have to deal with it. Uh, and again, some states even go start testing on it uh, as, as early as October of this year. So you got to understand the, the changes that are involved. Okay, so one of the big things that we have to understand with the National Electrical Code is this is an every three-year process, and it takes a while to compile. And so you bring together industry experts who serve on code panels, and, of course, people like you and me who will submit code changes or proposals or public inputs, however you still want to remember them, to the development process. And they get reviewed, and if it makes the grade, it goes into first draft, and then you get to see it. And if you don't like what was done, you get to submit something again in the public comment stage. And then it gets to look at it in the public comment. Next thing you know, it comes out in a second draft. You know, there's a process to it. In fact, it's one of the better processes, I will say, in development, code development. I do not like how the ICC does theirs. And it's just too many ways to game the system. Um, but anyway, so moving through the process uh, is, is critically important for us to be able to sit down. Now, I serve on Code Making Panel 5 and 17. And hopefully going to be able to do that as well for the 2023 edition. Um, but we, it's important to see all the things that are submitted and to be able to look at it and see where people are, where, where their mind is on a submittal, whether they substantiated something or they just didn't like something they submitted. Usually that doesn't make it very far, but it's an interesting process. And I I've thoroughly enjoy the process of being involved in it. But it's an important process because the code is a living document. We're constantly finding ways to make it better, to to fine-tune it, to realize that maybe some things that were in there of the past wasn't substantiated well enough, and a new new collective group of, of individuals come in that have certain specialties, and they'll look at it, and things will get submitted, and it just ends up working out, right? So that's the whole kind of the process. So... When you're looking at the National Electrical Code, there's certain things that are covered by the NEC, and there are certain things that aren't covered by the NEC. But there's also certain things that were assumed to be covered by the NEC, but it just wasn't in black and white. And a lot of people like black and white, right? They like it to be written. Unfortunately, a lot of people also want the code to be written in layman's terms, and then it's thick enough. You know, it's an inch and a half thick. You know, if we did that, it would be like the law document. It would be three, four, five inches thick, and nobody would want to use it. Nobody would uh, follow anything, and it just becomes more uh, problemsome, right? So at least the process or the way we have it now, uh, sometimes it can be tough to understand. But again, you got people you can reach out to, like us here at Master the NEC or Electrical Code Academy. 
but there's other people around the country that can help you out as well if you need assistance. That was the concept of, of why we started these programs. So when it comes to things that are covered by the NEC, you have what's called the Article 90, which is an introduction to the National Logical Code. And inside of it, you have a 90.2A and a B, uh, which covered which says what's covered. And then you have a .2B, which is what's not covered. And it's very clear. It'll tell you what the code covers in general, very broad. And then it'll tell you in a collective list uh, what's not covered by the NEC. It, it's pretty clear what's covered and what's not covered by the NEC. So... What we're going to do is kind of go through and, as I said, kind of a precursor to uh, what we're going to do on Electrician Live on our weekly show uh, for the next couple uh, series uh, on um, electricianlive.com is we're going to go over changes and we're going to kind of analyze them and talk about them a little bit. So let's get started in some of the changes and let's start all the way back at Article 90, Introduction, and let's kind of look at some of the changes that happened to the scope because me and you need to know what's covered and what's not covered. Now, we're not going to go over every item that's not a total learning the NEC. If you want to do that, you can jump on over to our Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash master the NEC. Or easy, you can go to paulabernanthe.com and you can join our Patreon. And there we walk you through every single article section of article of uh, the NEC for the 2020 edition. Uh, and we're doing it month to month to month to month. So we're building on that. And right now, I think we're up to uh, Article 210. So we've moved our way from 90 to 100 to 110 to 200. So it's an interesting series where I cover just about uh, every aspect uh, of the NEC. And we're going to do it until we complete that entire series. So it's a subscription. You continue on with me through that program and you subscribe, making a monthly commitment. And you can find out more about that by going to over to our uh, paulabernanthe.com or patreon.com forward slash uh, master the NEC. All right, that's the last advertisement for that I'm going to do today, I promise. I promise you. Yes, I promise it is. All right, so 90.2 A and B. A covered, B is not covered. In A, in the 2017 edition, we had four items. In the 2020 edition, we have additional two items that were added to the list, five and item six. Now, five deals with the installation supplying shore power to ships and watercraft in marinas and boatyards, including monitoring of leakage current. We know that there's a, a big issue with leakage current that, that's been going around with, you know, with the boats uh, and the um, watercraft that come to the marina and people getting into the water and, and people getting shocked and drownings and all this kind of stuff. So all of that now is under the scope of the National Electrical Code when it comes to the power that's going down to the marina or down to the docks. Uh, and then you have the pedestals on the dock. Now, the boats or watercraft typically come up to the marina. Uh, and then they'll have a cord that plugs into a pedestal that's on the deck of the marina, uh, on the the uh, uh, decking system or docks. Well, everything from the electrical distribution system down to those docks or down to those uh, decking systems or marinas is all going to be clearly now covered by the National Electrical Code. Obviously, in the past, we're like, well, who else would cover it? I mean, you have to get it from shore. And it starts from the shore. That should be where it's obviously covered, and that's all covered by the NEC. But again, there's the the, the, the black and white purists that would say, you know, it needs to be written that way. Okay, so item five has added now to make it clear that all installations uh, that supply shore power to ships and watercraft in marinas and boatyards, okay, 
including any monitoring of leakage current systems, are all going to be covered by the National Electrical Code. Okay. So again, there is there any 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 question on that anymore? Nope. It's all clear now. All right. Next item six. It says installations used to export electric power from vehicles to premise wiring or for bi-directional current flow. Okay, so we're all familiar in the code. Like we're, we, 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 we started this trend is the smart energy and conservation and how we're going to do things. So we had these electric vehicle charging systems and 625 and, and all this type of, it's Article 625, by the way, have all of this, this stuff that's that, that are starting to expand last couple years and these Teslas and everything. Well, you have some electric vehicles that are designed, and they kind of look like golf carts. This is just one example of one, that actually can have a bi-directional current flow. In other words, it can actually supply power, export power back to the premise, and being the premise being the, the, the dwelling or the house or whatever, the building. And really, we didn't cover it potentially being a standby source from that electric vehicle to the premise. We was, everything was so focused on how we deliver power from the premise to the electric vehicle. So we had nothing that can kind of govern that, that bi-directional current flow. And from not only supplying to the electric vehicle, but back to the actual premise. Well, again, we had rules with, with transfer switches and we, we have all this stuff for, standby power sources and all that. Well, this is just going a long way to say that, you know what, whether you're supplying it, we got it covered, but now we also cover the export of electric power from a vehicle to premise wiring. We're going to cover that too by the National Electrical Code, uh, and we're going to give guidelines for that as well, and it's all going to be covered. So that was item six that was added to Article 90 uh, to to, kind of bring that back into the fold, if you will, okay? All right, the next thing that we're going to look at is, uh, let's see here, in our changes, is we're going to jump straight into Article 100, okay, and, and, and look at the changes in 100. All right, so let's get me, get my code changes back up, and we'll look at this. So Article 100, this deals with definitions, and definitions are so critically important to... To understand because when we get involved in something in the National Electrical Code and we see a terminology, and it's a terminology, let's say, that's used in more than one article. So we see it constantly popping up through the NEC. Now, we're not talking generic terms that we can find in the in the Webster's Dictionary. We're, we're talking very much electrically related terminologies that, you know, that we, we, we run into frequently, like accessible or readily accessible or things like those type of terminologies are used all throughout the National Electrical Code. Now, remember some of the old things that we've learned many years ago in code knowledge or codology, we like to say, is that anytime I have a a specific definition for something and it's only pertains to that specific article, then it will be under the dot two of that article. It's very specific. Now, one of the changes in the 2020 is the new language that says, okay, it's going to be either specific to this article or that it's also specific to other articles as well. And it's kind of going to tell you that now in the dot two if it's relevant. Uh, but again, it's still this is the, the, the understanding that if a definition only applies to a specific article within the NEC, very specific, 
then it will be defined there. Now, if it's a article, if it's a definition of something that's going to be broadly used throughout the NEC, used in many other articles, and, and of course the Manual of Style for NFPA says anytime it's used in more than one, it's going to be in Article 100. Um, so everything gets relocated back here to Article, or up here, I should say, to the front, to Article 100. Okay, and so that's that's where we're at. Okay, now. It also has a reminder, just so you, you know, based on that statement, one of the changes in 2020 is to tell you right up front in the scope um, of this is that definitions are also found in the dot two sections of other articles. So, again, just a reminder that you could have some definitions that are very specific to a single article. And just because it's not in Article 100 doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It could be in dot two, which is, again, germane specifically to that article. All right. So the next thing that we've got is let's look at some, you know, some changes. Uh, one of the changes we have is to accessible. And this is a, as it applies to equipment. In the 2017 code, it actually said admitting close approach, not guarded by locked doors, elevation or other effective means. So this is what it said in the 20, 2017. But in the 2020 edition, it's kind of simplified it. And it says capable of being reached or operated renewed or inspected for uh, no wait a minute capable of being reached for operation renewal and inspection that's it okay so admitting close approach applies to equipment it just simply has to be capable of being reached for operation renewal and inspection okay that's the equipment doesn't kick anything into it what it talks about being readily accessible so if we have accessible requirement and it has to do with accessible to equipment it is only being capable of being reached for operation, renewal, and inspection. Again, very broad because before it said emitting close approach. And again, some of the applications, I might not be able to get close approach, okay? But I can definitely reach it for operation, renewal, and inspection, okay? So we have a dramatic change for the term accessible when it comes to equipment than what it was before. Um, and we'll leave some of the deep, deep discussions on this to the Electrician Live episode that'll be at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time here on the podcast. We're just kind of doing some coverage of different items, but we'll let it get, you know, obviously get it deeper uh, in that episode of, of some of these changes. The next thing that we have that we've added to the 2020 edition is an attachment fitting. What is an attachment fitting? Well, if you're familiar with our our newsletter series, I give you a, a graphic and show you what an attachment fitting is. Uh, basically, an attachment fitting is a device, and I'm reading you the definition. It's a device uh, by insertion into a locking support and mounting receptacle establishes a connection between the conductors of an attached utility equipment and the brand circuit conductors connected to the locking support and mounting receptacle. Okay, so if you think about what we've done through the past when we expanded the definition of receptacle, and the reason we expanded that is to open up the ability to use of these new products that have not only an attachment fitting, but a receptacle component, and they mate together and they support the weight of a heavy luminaire or a heavy uh, uh, ceiling fan scenario, and it connects together, so it's a mating system. 
Now, we defined and we talked about the portion of that system that connects into the box. So you have an outlet box and you put this receptacle device in that box. Uh, that was the point onto the system. And then, of course, you would put the, an attachment fitting onto the luminaire, onto the fan, and wire to it, and it would make, and then you would take it and it simply would mate together with the receptacle. But we didn't really have a definition of the portion that mounted onto the, the equipment. And that was called an attachment fitting. Okay. And of course, in here, we've also added an informational note for this new definition that says an attachment fitting is different from attachment plug because no cord is associated with the fitting. It's not. It's just the fitting that can mount onto the luminaire or mount onto a ceiling fan scenario, and it's not connected to any cord. Okay. So kind of a, you know, a distinct difference. Uh, it also goes on to say an attachment fitting in combination with the locking support and mounting receptacle, kind of what I just talked about, secures the associated utilization equipment in place and supports its weight. So these devices, which originally started out, they were presented to us uh, way back in, gosh, I think the 2014 cycle. We, they were It was bought to us to review as a code panel 17, and we looked at the device it made sense, uh, and so again, uh, one of those devices that would be utilized for things like uh, ceiling fans and heavy ceiling fans and heavy luminaires, and of course, dealing with Code Panel Seventeen. Obviously, we we deal with appliances in four twenty two, but we also deal in six eighty. So there's a you know lights and luminaires and. And, and, and so they're just getting the buy-in, and they were going from code panel to code panel, trying to get this the support of this. Uh, and again, it looked like a great idea. Obviously, it was patented by one company, and so the the worry was that the one company be the only one profiting, and it wouldn't it would shut down the ability for other companies to make it. But then they're licensing out that technology. But the real thing about it was it was it it it, it's, it was a good idea. And it needed to be, if it was going to be making its way into the code, then it needed to be defined. And so, again, so that's kind of where we were at with the, with the definitions in that. Okay? All right. The next thing that we have is, uh, and we're only going to talk significant changes, uh, is the move from supply-side bonding jumper which was in dot two of article 250 has moved over into 100. Okay. So that has moved now for all of those that are saying, well, I can't find it anymore in the dot two. Well, now you know why? Cause supply side bonding jumper is used in more than one article. Okay. Obviously we can have it, you know, applications for transformers. Uh, we can have the application obviously in service applications in 230. Uh, there's, there's just so many places that this reference will come up, okay? So, um, obviously, it's used with service equipment and with separately derived system applications. So, it had to really be located over into Article 100. So, that's what it was. What it is. So, again, rather than read you the definition and bore you with it, just know that supply-side bonding jumper uh, has moved uh, over to Article 100. And for those that don't know, it is basically the, the bonding jumper that's used to connect all supply-side raceways, supply-side service bonding, uh, as well as if you're going from a transformer to uh, secondary con- uh, secondary conductors to a, a panel. For example, uh, if it wasn't a fixed metal uh, 
raceway between the transformer and the actual panel, then you have to put in what's called a supply side bonding jumper. Okay. And uh, all this kind of stuff. So it covers a broad range. It's all designed for, uh, to provide electrical conductivity between metal parts that are required to be electrically connected together. Okay. So, uh, again, you have service raceways coming in, uh, and you're maybe encountering concentric eccentric knockouts. Then you're going to have to do bonding jumpers, and that bonding jumper would be, uh, since it's on the supply side, that would be a supply side bonding jumper. Okay, easy to understand that. The next one that we'll talk about uh, of of significance to us is the definitions that were bought over from. 725 and this was a definition for what we call class one class two and class three circuits a lot of confusion with those uh and routinely having to send people to 725 which was signaling and control now those definitions are firmly planted in article 100 okay so class one circuits it's the portion of the wiring system between the load side of a overcurrent device, and you know the terminal is the load side, uh, or power limited supply, and the connected equipment. Okay, so I could have a class one circuit on the load side of an overcurrent, or maybe even a specific power limited supply, all the way out to the connected equipment. It could be a class one circuit, and of course, informational note says. 725.41 for voltage and power limitations of class one circuits. So again, a great use of an informational note, which again, we all know is not enforceable. It's just good information. It's going to send you to a location that is probably obviously going to be enforceable. 725.41 is an enforceable code reference. Okay. So, so that's class one. Of course, class two says it's the portion of the wiring system between the load side of a class two power source. So, so the power source might be transformer or whatever it might be. Okay. That's the, the load side of that. Cause usually coming into it on the line side might be uh, traditional power and lighting circuits, but then on the load side of class two power source and all the way out to the connected equipment could be a class two. Okay. And again, that's going to be very load specific, very, you know, voltage specific. So it says due to its power limitations, a class two circuit considered is uh, a class two circuit considers safety from the, a fire initiation standpoint and provides acceptable protection from electrical shock. So typically, like doorbell transformers would be a great example of very limiting power source from the secondary portion of the class two power source connected out to the equipment. Um, again, due to the power limitations of that class two circuit. It's not really considered something that can initiate a fire from that aspect of it, okay, or provide electric shock. Um, that could be, you know, hazardous, that is, anyway. And, of course, you have Class 3, and Class 3 says it's a portion, on the, uh, a portion of a wiring system f- from between the load side of a Class 3 power source, if that's identified uh, as a Class 3 power source, and the connected equipment. Due to its limitations, Class 3 circuits considered safe, from a fire initiation standpoint, since higher levels of voltage and current, since higher levels of voltage and current than for class two are permitted, additional safeguards are specified to provide protection from an electric shock hazard uh, that could be encountered. So in this one, it looks kind of weird because it's class one, 
It's kind of very similar to regular power systems. Class 2 is one that it says, hey, it's considered safe from initiation and it's safe from electric shock. But then you have a Class 3, which says, okay, well, there's a little more power than Class 2. and But, you know, and it's considered safe from a fire initiation standpoint. So it's obviously not enough for the fire, but it does creep into the thresholds that it would be higher for electric shock than you would get in a class two. So it has to be protected as accordance. So again, knowing the different classes so that when your installation falls into those class one, class two, class three, you get a little bit better understanding. Of course, you want to go to 725 for more specifics on that. Obviously, it's going to be important that you know that. All right, the next one that we have in definitions that significant change to me is dormitory unit. Now, we have a lot of reference in the code that deals with dormitory units. We have obviously expanded applications for AFCIs uh, and 210 for dormitory applications, and, and we have rules in 210 for uh, you know branch circuits and the number of them in dormitory things. So we did not have a real clean cut, cut definition for it. Uh, so now we do, we have a definition for dormitory unit and interesting enough in the 2017 code, I don't believe we had any definition that was clear cut in the article 100, obviously for dormitory unit. So now we introduce a clear definition of dormitory unit. It says a, a granted we used it in chapter two quite a bit and it really, Kind of was all over there, okay? So what is a dormitory unit? It's a building or a space in the building in which group sleeping accommodations are provided for more than 16 people, okay? More than 16 people who are not members of the same family in one room, (laughs) okay? So good thing that the code is not used in China. All right, I'm sure I'll get hate mail for that, but that's okay. All right, now... Uh, in one room or a series of closely associated rooms under joint occupation and single management with or without meals, but without individual cooking facilities. Okay, so we have a little bit better understanding of what a dormitory unit is. So it's just going to make it much easier now when we're applying these rules to the code. Okay, so we, we know what dormitory units are. We now know that when we venture up into... Uh, 210.11, and we're, we're looking through all those, and we go to 210.12, and we're looking, I guess 210.11 doesn't really matter, 210.12 AFCIs, and now we start understanding, well, we have dormitory unit, but we never really knew what a dormitory unit was, so now we've, we, we do got some definitions that we can firmly connect to and be able to answer that question, okay, and I'm looking to see, and I don't really see what's any, any other than that. So we got a good definition there, and now we can hopefully use it properly. Uh, electric vehicle, uh, the definition of electric vehicle is now in Article 100, so it gives a firm definition of what an electric vehicle is. It is an automotive-type vehicle for on-road use, such as passenger automobiles, buses, trucks, vans, neighborhood electric vehicles, uh, electric motorcycles, and the like, primarily powered by an electric motor, that draws current from a rechargeable storage battery, fuel cell, photovoltaic array, or other source of electric current. It goes on to say plug-in hybrid electric vehicles are electric vehicles 
having a second source of motive power. Off-road, self-propelled electric mobile equipment, such as industrial trucks, hoists, lifts, transports, golf carts, airline uh, ground support equipment, tractors, boats, and the like, are not considered electric vehicles. Okay, real important so that we understand 625 and what applies and wasn't do- what does not apply. It is not going to apply to your golf carts. Now, interesting enough, I told you earlier about those systems that act as a standby system. That all really started with the uh, the uh, neighborhood electric vehicles. Uh, and these neighborhood electric vehicles had the ability to charge, and but they also had the, bil- the ability to discharge back into it and, and supply the premise like a standby power. So something had to be done. And so that's why you saw the changes in 90.2 to advent for that. Now, that's not the only piece of equipment that does that. I'm just saying that's kind of where we were at when it came to, well, we were missing something. We didn't have any guidance on that. Well, now you do. Um, Skip some of these. Um, Fault current. Fault current is the current derived from a point on the system during a short circuit condition. So we have the definition of fault current. But along with that, we have the definition of available fault current in a nifty little diagram, uh, informational note figured, 100.1, that kind of shows you the concept when people are asking, so what are we talking about when it says, I want to know what the available fault current is? And in the system, it can be from many, many different locations. For example, I can have the source, whether it's AC or DC, doesn't matter. Now, the source being a transformer, uh, I can let's just say it's a transformer, which could be a generator. But at the point of output at the source, there's the available fault current at the output. Or if it's transformer, let's say at the secondary point, there's an available fault current. And that follows all the way in through the piece of equipment to the overcurrent protective device. Now, on the line side of the overcurrent protective device, that is an available fault current value. And of course, with an overcurrent device, we have IR, and that is the interruptive ratings uh, that we have to be aware of that can actually handle that available fault current. Of course, that overcurrent protected device, whether it's a circuit breaker or fuse, sits in a piece of equipment, and the equipment has to have a short circuit current rating as well. And usually, you want to make sure, and I say usually, yes, you want to make sure that it is equal to or greater then whatever the interruptive rating would be on the overcurrent protected device and obviously equal to a greater than the available fault current itself. But here's the interesting thing. Once it leaves out of the overcurrent device and goes to load downstream uh, or another piece of equipment, you have available fault current values that are inherent at the point of connection to the load. Now, obviously, this is going to be dramatically reduced by the amount of conductor that you have running into the building downstream because all of it, basically, that impedance is affecting that available fault current level and could drop it down. So good chances are that the devices and equipment downstream, IR ratings or SCCR ratings, are going to be more than adequate to handle whatever that does gets to when it gets down to that point. Uh, But it's more important that we now have a diagram as well as a definition of available fault current uh, and fault current so that we all can start understanding it and harmonizing all of these, 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 these issues that we talk about when we're using terms like available fault current uh, and that. So, again, what the definition it says under the fault current is, again, it was the current de- um, delivered at a point on the system during a short circuit condition. 
And then the available fault currents definition is the largest amount of current capable of being delivered at a point on the system during a short circuit condition. Okay, It's the largest amount. So that is our available fault current. It is what it is. Okay, so interesting enough, the diagram that's going to be in the code is uh, really does make it easy to for people to grasp what we're asking you when we say available fault current. It's going to be much easier for the inspectors to point that out now and say, well, look, look right here or or go right here or there. So and this is what I'm talking about right here or there. So I think it's a, you know, definitely a, a good move. Another definition that was added to the uh, the. Uh, 2020 was free air and this applies to conductors so there's a lot of applications where conductors were were put in trays and and cable trays and used in applications uh, cables that were cabled together on messengers and and they wanted to use the application of free air and without a a clean understanding of what free air means when it, it applies to conductors um, it could mean that people apply a greater opacity value based on a table that deals with free air than what you really should have applied to these conductors. Uh, so with the definition of free air, it's a good starting point to say what is free air when it, when it applies to conductors. It's open or ventilated environment that allows for the heat dissipation and airflow around an installed conductor. Okay. So important. It doesn't say conductors, doesn't say uh, installed cable. It just says conductor. So open a ventilated environment that allows for heat dissipation and airflow around an installed conductor is the actual definition of free air as it applies to conductors now uh, within the National Electrical Code. So again, before we had, you know, it's still going to pretty much use the guidance of design in, in, uh, 392 for cable trays. We're probably going to follow the normal rules that we always would in reference to tables for ampacity that we normally would. But if you're going to utilize free air, it just makes you stop and look at this definition and say, okay, is this free air condition? And can I apply the increased ampacities to these conductors that are truly free air application? Okay. Now, uh, we have a definition now for fuel cell and fuel cell system. Uh, and again, uh, this is uh, just new into Article 100. Okay, this is where it's it's new for the Article 100 application. And so they're into the code. What is a fuel cell? That's an electrochemical system that consumes fuel to produce an electric current. In such cells, the main chemical reaction used to produce electric power is not combustion. Okay, however. There may be sources of combustion used within the overall cell system, such as reformers or fuel processors. Okay, Again, I don't develop fuel cell systems. I don't really know all of that that goes in them. But I do know they go together in what's called a total fuel cell system. And so, of course, we have a definition for fuel cell system. It's the complete aggregate of equipment used to convert chemical fuel into usable electricity and typically consisting of a reformer, stack, power inverter, and auxiliary equipment, whatever additional equipment that needs to be to go with that equipment, whether it's monitoring or whatnot. All that part of a fuel cell system, if that is your world, okay? 
All right, so the next changes, and I'm just looking, you know, we're just talking significant changes. Um, there's a lot of little subtle changes in the wording to different ones. I encourage you to look them up. But now we'll talk uh, the inclusion of the term habitable room. Now, this is important because we have a lot of references in the code that say this and that based on being a habitable room. And we really had to lean heavily on the International Building Code or International Residential Code to understand what a habitable room was. So we've made it clear now in the definitions of what a habitable room is. It is a room in a building for living, sleeping, eating, or cooking. Okay, But it excludes bathrooms, toilet rooms, closets, hallways, storage or utility spaces, and similar areas. Okay. So again, the code will tell us certain things on what we have to have in the code, but there's many areas where it just says so-and-so has to be this, that, this in habitable rooms. Well, a habitable room, as far as our use of the National Electrical Code, is any of those rooms that are designed for living, sleeping, eating, and cooking, which incidentally make up what we call a dwelling unit. But it's specifically excluding things like bathrooms, toilet rooms, closets, hallways, storage, and utility spaces, or the similar. Now, that doesn't mean later in the code it might demand something in a bathroom like a luminaire or something. Uh, That's not to say that you're going to jump and say, whoa, 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 it's not a habitable room. No, no, the code is telling you to put something in there, so it's very specific. This is just a general statement in what's considered a habitable room anytime the reference to habitable room comes up. In the National Electrical Code, we now can go back and say, oh, okay, living, sleeping, eating, and cooking. Those are habitable rooms. These rules would apply to all habitable rooms. So, again, just kind of giving you a definition change in what has been added. Okay. Uh, The next one we have is a clear definition of what an IT equipment room is. That's information technology room. It is a room within an information technology uh, equipment area that contains the information technology equipment. So I could have a data center and then I have a specific room within the data center that is specific, okay, for the information technology equipment. So it's a room within the information technology equipment area that can that contains the that actually contains the information technology equipment. You'd put it in there. Uh, it might be we consider it a, an IT room. And all of the IT equipment is in that room. So information technology equipment room is the room within the specific area that's being treated as an IT equipment area. But in that room is where we would install all the information technology equipment. Then that's an IT equipment room. Makes sense, I guess. Now, another thing that we've added here in the 2020 code is a lot of the definitions that might have been spattered throughout things like uh, in PV uh, and 690 and other applications have been moved over into Article 100. Uh, more specifically, we're talking about things like the inverter. We're talking about inverter input circuit, inverter output circuit, inverting multi-mode, and then, of course, island mode, okay? Which island mode used to kind of be called standalone, uh, but now we call it island mode, okay? All right, it has the ability to be disconnected from electric power production or the distribution network or both uh, or other primary power to act on its own 
as an island, and that type of thing means nothing else connected, just like you would think an island out in the middle of the water by itself, being able to operate on its own, uh, that type of scenario. Okay, so we added five new definitions or, or relocated definitions uh, over to 100 because, again, very broadly used now with, with the advent of other types of systems that are going to use inverters and things like that. So uh, very broad, so we had to have that change. Again, these are under the purview. The The input and output inverter is under Code Panel 13's purview, so they're going to define it. And, of course, then you've got Code Making Panel 4, which is covering the inverter in the inverter mode as well as the island mode. So you have the different inputs from the different code-making panels. Uh, interesting enough that the code-making panel 13 uh, is the one that deals with 480, for example, for batteries, but they also handle 700, 701, 702, which is emergency, legally required, and optional. So you see how they, they all kind of work together. So it's interesting that code panel 13 uh, doesn't have anything to do with the items that are covered in code-making panel 4. Right, and code making panel four is dealing with the 690, 691 for large scale PV systems and all that. So, as you can see, they have to work together because you have different inverters and different values, and so um, they all work together. And then it gets correlated by the NEC, and everything's good to go. Um, another definition we have for the twenty twenty is the definition for a laundry area. Okay, so again, that wasn't actually a defined same as years ago we didn't know what a bathroom was now we do thank goodness we all can go on with our lives same with kitchens we didn't know what a kitchen was you know a few cycles ago now we do well now we know what a laundry area is it's an area area containing or designated to contain a laundry tray clothes washer or clothes dryer and again that's under code making panel two's purview uh and they submit their definition over to code making panel one and that's how it gets in in, in chapter one, article 100. Okay. So on look, we can all live better now that we know what a laundry area is. Next thing we have is the definition of a messenger or messenger wire. Now me and you probably, if you, I, I have people still today who aren't really aware of what a messenger is, right? They're like, I'm not a hundred percent sure what a messenger is, how it applies, what do I do with it? So if you're not familiar with what a messenger is and how you would utilize a messenger, then you need to go into the National Electrical Code because the National Electrical Code is going to give you guidance on the use of a messenger system. Now, if you're utilizing a messenger system, which is basically a support, let's say, from point A to point B, a building support uh, or something like that, that you actually can hang stuff from, different cable assemblies from. Uh, but you would look at Article 396. In a 396, uh, in the 2017 edition, kind of didn't really have, it had a, de- it, it talked about insulated conductors, and, but it didn't have a, a firm definition of what a messenger was or what a messenger wire is. Okay. It just says that. Article 396 says messenger support wiring, and then it has a scope, and it has a dot two for definitions. Uh, but again, it just talks about it, it's it gets deeper when you go into 396 by itself. But we really needed a a core definition. So, what is a messenger or a messenger wire? It's a wire that runs along with or integral with a cable or conductor 
to provide mechanical support for the cable or conductor. So ACSR, for example, service drop, uh, aluminum conductor, steel reinforced, uh, has that steel center core of, of the grounded conductor. That is the messenger wire. That is the messenger for that conductor, which also in turn supports the other conductors on a service drop. Uh, that's example. Or you can go from building A to building B on a steel support system and the cable assembly, whether it's an aerial cable or one of the other cables that are permitted in 392.10, uh, to actually connect to it to support its weight. Okay, and so that's what you might see overhead, not to be confused with overhead open conductors. Okay, that's open wiring under 398. Okay, so uh, or outdoor uh, 399 if you're dealing with over a thousand volts, which we're not typically going to deal with in this episode. So, anyway, you've got this list, and again, 396.10a, there's a nice nifty table. And that table will tell you different types of, of cable types that are allowed to be supported on a messenger and whatnot. Okay. Anyway, but now we have a definition. This gives you a better understanding of what it is. Okay. And let's see here. Um, the other thing that we have is we've added or relocated the definitions of what a peer is. Obviously, this is used in 382. I mean, excuse me, 682 uh, for natural bodies of water and for 680. Uh, and obviously used in uh, 555, uh, not 555. Pardon me. What was I thinking? 555. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Oh, no, I'm right. 555. Okay, what was it? My mind was on something. Hold on for a second. That was... That was scary, so... <laughs> scary, man. My mind was like, like I was going whack nut today. Anyway, so you have all these areas that are making reference to peers. And so we have the definition of a peer, and we have a definition of what's a fixed peer versus a floating peer. So all of those definitions have been added to Article 100. Okay, so what is a peer? It's a structure extending over the water and supporting a fixed foundation, that would be a fixed pier, or a floating, that would be a floating pier, that provide access to the water. So that's the pier, okay? In Nags Head area, whatever, or I guess Avon, they have the Avon Pier. It extends out into the water. Now, that is a fixed pier, okay, because it's on piles, okay? A floating one would be one that actually has flotation under kind of piers, you know, that type of thing. So at least now we have the definition of those so that when we're dealing with 555 or we're dealing with other applications uh, in the code that, that have something to do with peers, we at least know what a definition of a peer is so that when it makes reference to something, let's say it only references to fixed peers, what's a fixed peer? We have a definition of fixed peer, just makes it a little easier for us to, to be able to deal with. Okay. Uh, the next thing that uh, I think is probably pretty decently important, if that's a word, pretty decently important, is power production equipment. What is it? And we have this reference a lot in 705. We have this reference in uh, other areas of the code, and we're like, okay, we need to define what it is. So power production equipment is electrical generating equipment supplied by any source other than the utility service up to the source system disconnecting means. So again, power production equipment can be PV, wind generation, fuel cell, a bunch of different options that would kick into that being considered power production equipment so that when the National Electrical Code references the term power production equipment without being specific to any type of equipment, 
we can go back and say, well, it's anything that provides power to, um, to, to as the source other than the utility, because the utility is not a power production equipment or power production. That is your utility. And you can only have one utility. Utility comes from the actual utility company. Services come from the utility. Now, we have other power production equipment that feed into the system's disconnection mean for that power source. That's not a service. However, we do have changes in the code that are going to tell us that we're going to treat it like a service because it's on the line side of any disconnect that we still have to bond everything. So we're going to treat it like a service. We're going to reference it like a service. But remember, it's not a service. Okay. So again, having that definition at least pulls it together because we do use that terminology quite a bit in the NEC. So it makes sense to, to bring it down into one location. Uh, the next one that, that, that I think is significant to look at is the term reconditioned. Now, this was a huge fight in the NITMAM stage on what considered what equipment could be reconditioned and what could not be reconditioned. Uh, and so throughout the code, we now have references that are talking about what can be reconditioned and what can't be reconditioned, uh, what type of... Uh, uh, and I go into really good detail in my newsletter about the application of what can and what can't and kind of give a list um, of things. Uh, for example, panel boards, no. But switch gear, switch boards, yes. And so, uh, you know, GFCI receptacles, no. AFCI, no. Circuit breakers, no. But large power breakers, yes. So there's different rules that say what can and what can't be reconditioned. And so by adding this definition... It's clear. It says electromechanical systems, equipment, apparatus, or components that are restored to operating condition. Okay, that's important. Restored to operating condition because later in the code, you're going to see that there are some applications where when something gets reconditioned, let's say switch gear, that you're going to have to put a, a label on it with the date, and who did the reconditioning uh, and, and all this, and you remove the original listing and put the new one back on it. So you actually literally remove the listing that's on it for that piece of reconditioned equipment. And we have all those rules that have to be followed, but it's real important to understand that I can have a piece of equipment, whereas let's say it's a switch gear, and local my maintenance crew or whatever are doing some stuff and maintaining on it then that doesn't necessarily mean it's reconditioned so all these other rules about labeling and all might not apply um but it, and if i pull that piece out and replace it with a totally new piece it means i didn't recondition the piece that i was working on initially at all then it's not considered reconditioned it's it's replacement it's 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 another new piece so you wouldn't have to put any labels on it because it already is listed so again it's important to understand when I'm actually reconditioning something is it's the same piece of equipment. I'm just reconditioning it. It's going right back in. It's not totally new, but we also don't want to confuse it with any maintenance that might be made on it as not being considered reconditioned. That's part of just a maintenance schedule. So again, you're going to have to work with your HJ. There's also allowances in here where the labeling is not all going to be required, even in a recondition. If it's done in a system where they, the, 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 uh, building has maintenance and supervision and this is part of their normal scope of work then they know what's going on they don't have to relabel something they know their equipment that's in there but you got to meet all those rules other than that if i recondition something or a piece of equipment gets reconditioned it's going to get a new label uh, from the inertial 
And that is something that you've got to do, and you've got to remove the old one for that piece. So a bunch of rules that we'll obviously cover when you get to those areas in the code. But you need to understand what reconditioned is. And then another term or another informational note was added here that says the term reconditioned is frequently referred to as rebuilt. And I think that's the easiest way to remember something. It's the same piece of equipment. You're just rebuilding it. The people that are rebuilding it have to be accredited to be able to do that and then put their date that they did it in their, the, the listing on it. Uh, but it says refurbished or remanufactured. So recondition is not going to apply if I take a piece out and replace it with a brand new piece. Okay, that's that's not going to be a recondition. Okay, so anyway, great definition. Again, there's certain things in the code that you can recondition and certain things that you cannot, and the code will tell you that. It'll tell you what you can and what you can't recondition. But you also want to work very closely with the manufacturer. Okay, very closely with the manufacturer. Uh, the next, uh, I'm just looking, you know, significant changes. Some of these are just subtle changes, and there's not as uh, big. Uh, the other big change for Article 100 is the the adding of a new part, Part 3. Now, Part 3 was added, uh, and it is basically all of the definitions that have to do with hazardous classified locations. So that's important because all through 500, 501, 502, 503, 511, 513, all of those that have some hazardous locations and there's terminologies that are used throughout all of that are now relocated into article 100 under part three. So things like combustible dust or combustible gas detection systems, or uh, maybe dust ignition proof or dust tight, all of that now, or, uh, encapsulation, all of that, explosion-proof equipment, all of those definitions now are going to be back in Article 100, Part 3. So that was a really, really good move so that when I'm looking at something that is generically used in multiples, for example, intrinsically safe, okay, an intrinsically safe circuit is basically a circuit in which any spark or thermal effect is incapable of causing ignition, based on the mixture of fuel and combustible material. Uh, it, so this is a something that would be intrinsically safe circuit. It's a circuit that isn't really capable of starting a fire or an explosion. Now, having the definition of intrinsically safe circuit back here in Article 100 means that regardless of, of mentioning that terminology, that we can actually have a clear definition that is broadly used in more than one article. So if it's talked about in 501, 502, and 503, and it says an intrinsically safe circuit, what is that? Well, we go back to Article 100 now, and we can see it, and just makes a, a much cleaner uh, application. Okay, So you have all of these, these new definitions that are in here. You even have the definition for a major repair garage and a minor repair garage clearly defined in here rather than having to define it all the way up in the higher in chapter five. Okay. And so again, for me, it's just a one stop, easy shop, uh, definition of a fuel motor dispensing facility. Uh, again, which is something that's really important to, to understand if I'm dealing with fuel dispensing applications that I'm basically know what I'm doing. For example, if I'm dealing with a commercial garage repair under five article 511, okay, it's going to give me some, it's going to give me 
the what is if it asks something about a fuel dispensing that has something to do with that, then I know that I'm in the right area. Okay, so great thing to have a definition. Of course, for me and you, it it, it kind of harmonizes with fuel dispensing systems in Article Five Fourteen. So again, while if it makes a mention in Five Eleven. But also it's used in 514, which is a core article for, for fuel dispensing uh, facilities. Then this kind of, rather than have it regurgitated, since it's used in more than one article or could be referenced in more than one article, then it just being back in 100 uh, makes so much sense to me. All right, so then there's so many different uh, definitions that have been moved. The definition now of pressurized, process seals, uh, purging and pressurized, all these that spray booths, spray areas, all of those type of references to what they are now are placed in to um, Article 100. So again, it just makes for an easier method of how to utilize the NEC, I think. Okay, we'll move on into 110, cover a few of these before we end this one because I don't want it to be too much longer than an hour. Um, is we have a change for the conductors in 110.5. And in 110.5, it used to have an informational note that incorporated copper-clad aluminum. Well, that's been moved up into the body of 110.5 now. So again, conductors used to carry current shall be copper, aluminum, or copper-clad aluminum. Just remember that copper-clad aluminum is still very much aluminum. Okay, it's not copper, doesn't doesn't gain the benefits of copper. All right, so that's important to remember. Uh, the next thing we see is in 110.12, which is mechanical execution of work. Now, the 2017 code, we had an A and a B. One is dealing with unused openings, and the other is the integrity of an electrical uh, equipment and connections. Okay, and we've used that. That was meaning that we can have, for example, 110.12b integrity was we didn't have, can have paint or plaster or anything that could affect the operation of the equipment and terminals, uh, other things that could damage foreign material. And of course, unused openings, we want to make sure that all those unused openings are plugged and, and, and everything so people can't stick things through or rodents climb through. We, we got that. Um, and this is the one that talks about electrical equipment shall be installed in a neat and workmanlike manner and does give an informational note to the ANSI 1 document, which is a good workmanship standard. Uh, but again, informational notes aren't enforceable. So again, work that is neat and workmanlike is, again, in the eye of the beholder. You might see something that you think is neat and the next person looks at it and all you got to do is go on Instagram or go on any of the social media and look at graph pictures and you might get a quick understanding of there's two different camps on what people think is neat. It's very subjective. What you might think is neat doesn't matter what somebody else might think is neat uh, as long as it's installed uh, in a, in a, in a, it, it, it meets its intent. Okay, but there are some things like unused openings or running across buses or plaster or some kind of something that's that's put into the equipment or something that's cracked or bent or deteriorated or something uh, that that can affect the integrity of the piece of equipment. So all those things are fall under 110.12. But we added a 110.12C, which is cable and conductors. And this one's interesting. So I'll read it. 
because it is new to the 2020, it says cables and conductors installed, exposed on the surface of ceilings and sidewalls. Okay, so again, certain cable allows you to run it exposed. It'll tell you in the uses permitted for cables if you can run it exposed, like MC cable, NM, all those allow for it to be run exposed, uh, typically following the surface of the building. It says cables and conductors installed exposed on the surface of ceilings or sidewalls shall be supported by the building structure in such a manner that the cables and conductors will not be damaged by normal building use. Um, So again, running it with the surface of the building or on running boards, that's kind of referred to in the different code uh, articles anyway. It says such cables and conductors shall be secured by hardware, including straps, staples, cable ties, hangers, or similar fittings designed and installed so as not to damage the cable. Again, covered by the respective articles for those products more than less anyway. It says the installation shall also conform with 300.4, and that is your protection, you know, through board holes and running parallel with framing members. Got to follow that. And 300.11, and of course 300.11 for those that are familiar with that, is systems that are wired above suspended ceilings uh, and that type of thing. So above suspended uh, applications for securing and supporting for raceways, cable assemblies, box cables, and fittings uh, shall be securely fastened in place. Uh, but this is one it talks about, again, above the wiring above suspended ceilings as well and located within the cavity of a, flo- a fire-rated floor ceiling or roof ceiling assembly. Uh, shall not be secured to or supported by the ceiling uh, assembly. That's the what holds the ceiling. So that's like the you could have a fire rated drop ceiling, uh, or you could have a non fire rated drop ceiling, but you're not connecting to those support wires that actually support the ceiling. Okay. Um. So anyway, all of that type of you can run independent support wires. Anyway, so that's kind of what it's talking about. And of course, it gives you instructions in 300.11 for tagging and or, or, or making sure that your supports stand out from the supports for the grid. That's type of things. Uh, it also goes on to say non-metallic cable ties and other non-metallic cable accessories used to secure or support cables in other spaces used for environmental air. That would be 300.22C, uh, by the way shall be listed as having low smoke and heat release properties. So you're not going to be able to use in those spaces uh, any old normal uh, cable ties. So, for example, 300.22C allows MC cable to be above a suspended ceiling that's used for environmental air acting like a plenum, but you can't support them with regular tie wires, for example, unless those tie wires, those cable ties, uh, are low smoke and heat release properties. So you wouldn't typically be able to go down to your Harbor Freight and buy their cable ties and use it for this uh, unless they were slow smoke and heat release properties. Now, you might not do that anyway. You might use metal tie wires or whatever. Obviously, that's fine. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to follow the same allowances for the cable assembly you're using anyway. So you'll have a dot .30 securing and supporting, and you'll have rules that you have to follow anyway. But so this is just... Really good additional information that just is very general to cables and conductors, okay? And this is very general because it's in Chapter 1, so it applies all the way throughout the National Electrical Code generally. Chapter 1 through 4 applies broadly throughout the NEC, okay? And then there's three informational notes here uh, just to give you additional information. Again, that's all they are, is you have acceptable industry practice as an ANSI NECA 
document standard for installing and testing fiber optic cables. Um, you've got an informational note too, which references NFPA 90A. Uh, that is the standard for installation of air conditioning and ventilation systems. That's probably where you're going to go to find out about what's considered environmental airspace acting like a plenum. And that's where they got that information from, uh, that's over in 300.22C, uh, that I just talked about. And then lastly, the information note three says plaster, paint, cleaner, abrasive, corrosion residue, corrosive residues, and other contaminants may result in an undetermined alteration of fiber optic cable properties. Okay. Uh, I think that could probably have an effect on all types of systems, uh, types of uh, uh, cables that you're using anyway, depending on what's in those cleaners or abrasives or whatnot. So not sure why it's just specifically for optical fiber cable properties, but nevertheless, there's your reference in there. Okay. All right. Uh, the last one we'll talk about in this episode is is 110.14, and this is the change in 110.14D. Now, you probably remember back in the 20, uh, 2017 edition uh, that it required that you that, it, that you had to, is an installation is what it was called, and it was 110.14D, and it says, in the 2017, it says, where a tightening torque is indicated as a numeric value on equipment or in installations instructions provided by the manufacturer, it said a calibrated torque tool shall be used. Now, this caused a lot of problems through the industry because it was the it basically says that you had to use a calibrated torque tool. And of course, calibration means that it had to be um, a certificate that showed that it really was calibrated. And so were you going to require them to the inspector to check every termination because to be honest with you, terminals all the way down to connectors on fittings have a torque value. So you're like, okay, um, do you have your torquing screwdriver? Do you have your torquing wrench? If you're going to do your lugs and your feeders and your service applications. And so again, torquing with a torquing tool, a calibrated was not the only way to do it. So they removed the reference to a calibrated torque tool. But they added the concept into an informational note to say, you know, that's still one way to do it. So here's how they changed it for the 2020 code. It says 110.14D, terminal connection torque. It says tightening torque values for terminal connections shall be indicated on equipment or in the installation instructions provided by the manufacturer. An approved means shall be used to achieve the indicated torque value. Now, this is an advent of the word, again, approved. And approved means by the AHJ or whoever has the authority in that jurisdiction. It could be a military facility that's utilizing the NEC, and maybe the the, uh, the base commanding officer is the AHJ. Uh, and this, and he will delegate that task out to inspectors in the own uh, in the facility. That's really no different than what municipalities do um, if they utilize the NEC. Um, and in this case, they have the authority to approve something. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a torquing tool, but it could be. That's fine. But it also have other types of things that are pro- that the manufacturers can provide, which can provide, which are like a snap tool, which snaps at a certain foot pounds or inch pounds, depending on the size of the of the conductors in the terminal you're using. It starts out usually in inch pounds, and then when they get bigger, they, it translates into foot pounds. There's other ways to do it rather than just a calibrated torquing tool, okay? So you have three informational notes, and I'll just read those because I think they're fairly important. Informational note number one, again, not enforceable, but 
Good information. It says examples of approved means to achieve the indicated torquing values include torque tools or devices such as shear bolts or breakaway style devices with visual indicators that demonstrate that the proper torque has been applied. And sometimes you can buy those. They'll go in between your lug and your actual wrench and they'll have a value that snaps and breaks off. Um, But again, it's also allows you to to use a torque wrench or torque screwdriver where applicable if you want. That's fine. As long as the AHJ is okay with it. Um, Number two informational note says equipment manufacturers can be contacted if numeric torque values are not indicated on the equipment or if the installation instructions are not available, then you can use informative annex I of UL standard 486A through 486B. I should say it's actually 486A-46B. And that, that document's titled Standard for Safety Wire Connectors. And it does provide torque values in the absence of a manufacturer's recommendation. However, I will tell you, uh, it, the easiest thing for most people to do is to reach right out to the manufacturer and get that information from the manufacturer. Okay. Now, with that said, I will say that we do have, uh, again, the Annex I in the NEC, which is going to regurgitate those UL standards so you don't have to rush out and buy a 46A-46B standard. So it's you can go there in the absence of manufacturer guidance. But you know what? The manufacturers are there for a reason. I guess if it comes from somewhere overseas or whatnot, and we won't get into that. But if you can get with the manufacturer, always get with them first. But in, if you can't, then you do have permission to go beyond that and use uh, the Annex I, uh, which, again, is a regurgitation of the UL standard 46A-46B. And you're probably you're going to be okay with that. But, again, go for the manufacturer first and let this be your secondary thing. Uh, and then the last informational note says additional information for torquing Threaded connections and terminations can be found in section 8.11 of NFPA document 70B, which is the recommended practice recommended practice for electrical equipment maintenance. So 70B is the NFPA's maintenance document. This is a good time to remind you that all NFPA documents are available to read for free on their website, nfpa.org. All you have to do is get a free account. Once you get a free account, you can go into the codes and standards documents and you get to look at every one of them. It works on your phone, a tablet, or whatever. And if you need it in a pinch and you've got internet connection, you punch it, you get to see a free version of it, especially if you're just looking for that one section, 8.11, for example, and 708 or 70B. I don't want to own the whole document. I just want to see that one. Then use the free version. Works out. Makes it easy. Okay? Anyway, hopefully that gets you you somewhere anyway. So, again... We're going to stop right there for this episode. Hopefully that got you, your, your, you know, wet your beak, if you will, got you a little bit, uh, your, your juices flowing to look at some of these code changes. And then hopefully you'll join us for our Electrician Live where we'll go over code changes uh, and it'll be a perpetual series where we'll talk about National Electrical Code changes and kind of give you some insight as we move through them. So until next time, folks, stay safe and God bless. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abner.